Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Great to be here with you. Uh, as always, a huge blessing. Uh, good to see some newer faces. Um, pray that the Lord ministers to you as you gathered with us. Uh, also want to welcome those who are checking in online. Pray that the Lord blesses you as you join with us virtually. All right. And as uh, the kids make their way out, will the rest of you please make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Okay, Gospel of Luke chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we last left off in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Last week we covered verses 12 through 16. This week we're going to look to cover verses 17 through 26. Now, since chapter 4 of our study of Luke's Gospel... We've been looking at the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ in and around the region of Galilee. We've seen many accounts of how the people were astonished and amazed at the authority that Jesus had and demonstrated. He showed his authority in his teaching uh, as he taught like none other. Uh, He showed his authority in his ability to cast out demons, to uh, heal the sick. He showed his authority over nature as he overflowed two boats with more fish than they had ever seen before. He demonstrated his authority in calling people to follow after him. Last week, we saw his authority in curing the seemingly incurable. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the untouchable, healing the leper of his spots and restoring his body. You see, Jesus left the people in awe, blown away at what he could do, and amazed by his authority and his power. Well, today, Jesus is going to do something that we haven't seen him do just yet in Luke's gospel. We've seen Jesus heal physical sicknesses. We've seen him heal mega fevers, Peter's mother-in-law, various diseases. We've even seen him heal a leper. But in our portion today, he ups his game so to say. Jesus is going to take on the greatest sickness known to man. A sickness and a disease that plagues us all. I am talking about the deadly disease of sin. Sin is something that has plagued mankind since the days of Adam and Eve. And greater than any other uh, virus or plague or pandemic, sin has continued to spread throughout history, and if undealt with, will always result in death. In our account today, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his authority over this disease to the amazement and to the awe of all who witnessed it. The title of our study this morning is going to be Spiritual Triage. Okay, Spiritual Triage. As the great physician, Jesus is presented with an opportunity to heal a paralytic And just like any other doctor's office or hospital would do, Jesus begins his assessment of this man and his well-being by performing spiritual triage, by identifying and tackling the greatest need of the sinner that is set before him. Now I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible, but I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible. But before I get going, Can I invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and his word? Luke continues his narrative in chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, 
men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Verse 25 says, Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying upon, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would lead us and guide us through your word. Lord, as we even sang, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word, Lord, and that you would uh, minister to us through your word. Lord, I do ask that you would, by your spirit, lead and guide us by your spirit, open our ears that we might receive all that you desire for us to receive. Lord, that you would reign supreme in our service this morning and in our hearts and in our lives. We give you this time. We look forward to hearing from you. And we pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text, it, it opens up jumping really right into the things, right into things, and giving us the details about some ministry that happened on a certain day. Uh, But Luke doesn't give us much more as way of background or details. Uh, Fortunately for us, this account is recorded for us in both the other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark. And so we can read from the other accounts to get some of the background and some of the other details that help really set the scene. Mark's gospel tells us, This event took place after Jesus had returned to Capernaum. And I think that's important. Capernaum was the city that Jesus had left from to go tour the different synagogues throughout the region of Galilee, preaching and teaching the word of God. And so we get the idea that Jesus has finished his circuit ministry of going around the region and and preaching. And now he is returning home. Okay, we will see Jesus come to and go from this city throughout much of his three years of earthly ministry as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke. It was, uh, in a sense, a headquarters uh, for Jesus and his disciples. In fact, Matthew, in his parallel account of this event, he identified the city of Capernaum as Jesus' own city in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Mark's gospel also tells us that Jesus had returned to the house. Now, this is more than likely referring to Peter's house. Uh, This was the house that Jesus would frequent and stay at when in the city of Capernaum. And so we get the idea, the understanding that as Jesus returned to Capernaum, he entered Peter's house, word started spreading 
that Jesus had returned, and he was there at the house, and the multitude started coming to him once again. Now, you may recall that prior to leaving this area, Jesus had the whole city looking for him one morning after a full day and night of ministry on the Sabbath, the previous day. Okay? But when Peter and some of the other disciples found Jesus out in a deserted place praying, Jesus informed them that he must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose he had been sent. And so despite the city's efforts to convince him to stay, Jesus moved on preaching throughout the region, but now he's back. And so are the people. Okay, so let's dive into the first verse of our text. We'll hear about a new group of people that have been added to the mix. Verse 17. It says, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. We'll stop right there. Our text tells us that amongst the group of people that had made their way to the house was a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. We know them as scribes. Now, the Pharisees, they were part of the religious elite that ruled in the Sanhedrin there in the city of Jerusalem. And the scribes, they were, as mentioned here, teachers of the law. As we make our way through the gospel, we're going to encounter this group many times. We're going to get very familiar with the Pharisees and with the scribes as we continue our way through the uh, gospel of Luke. Okay, and it would appear that these men were more than likely sent to keep an eye on Jesus and to gather information about his teaching and the miracles that he was performing. Remember, that word about Jesus and the authority that he taught with, the authority with which he healed with, it was spreading throughout the area. And no doubt, word had come to Jerusalem about Jesus and the religious leaders. They sent out men to hear firsthand what all the people were talking about. And as I suggest, uh, it would seem that they brought their friends and colleagues with them as well. For Luke tells us that they had come not only from Jerusalem, but also from every town of Galilee and Judea. And so all of these religious leaders are all descending upon the city of Capernaum to hear from Jesus. Now, I find it worth noting that as all the multitudes once again came out to Jesus, and this time even the religious leaders and teachers of the law, they were there as well. What Jesus does first and foremost? What is his priority? What does he do? Our opening verse tells us that Jesus took the opportunity to teach them. He, Mark's gospel says, and he preached the word to them. Jesus was teaching and preaching the word of God to the people. And I look at that and I think to myself how important it is to have the word of God taught and preached that it may go forth. And while I'm sure many people were there more for healing and they were there to see the miraculous, Jesus continued to emphasize the teaching and the preaching of the word. You know, there are many reasons why Jesus continued to emphasize the teaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, I'm going to highlight just a few of them for you. For one, we know that it is through the teaching and preaching of God's Word that people come to faith. 
Okay, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, okay, tells us that, so then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay, and so, why such an emphasis on teaching? Because it is through the teaching of God's word that people come to faith. Two, the gospel message that Jesus taught and preached, it has the power to bring salvation. Again, Paul writes in Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Okay, third, okay, the word of God will not return void. Okay, Isaiah the prophet writes, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, God's word will not return void. And then fourthly, the word of God, it is sufficient for all of our needs. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes to young Timothy, encouraging him and exhorting him in the sufficiency of the scriptures. Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, we can go on and on speaking about the benefits that the Word of God brings to all who hear it, but I only have got about 40 minutes, so we're going to stop there. Okay, but we see, we understand that Jesus emphasized the teaching and the preaching of God's Word, and that is why here at Calvary we spend so much time in the Word of God. The Word of God brings faith. It has the power to bring salvation. It will not return void, and it is sufficient for all of our needs. And frankly, if we didn't teach the Word of God here, I don't know what we would teach, okay? Because I don't know what else there would be to teach, okay? You know, there have been times I have had people come up and they'd mentioned to me, you know, how wonderful it is and how different it is to actually come to a church where the Word of God is taught and preached. And while I'm thankful that the services are a blessing to those people, I must admit that it catches me off guard sometimes. Okay? Uh, when I got saved, I got plugged into the ministry of a Calvary chapel where the Word was the emphasis. Okay? To me, that's all I've ever known. Okay? I got saved, I got, went to a Calvary chapel, and it's like, okay, we go to church, we sit down for 45 minutes to an hour, and we get into the Word. And that's just all I've known. But I'm amazed to find out that there are other churches, other ministries out there that don't bother to teach the Word of God. And it's sad. And they will resort to all sorts of gimmicks, smoke and mirrors, 10-step self-help programs, and all sorts of other things as substitutes for the Word of God. Listen, there is no substitute for God's Word. The church needs to be a place where the sheep get fed, not a place where they are entertained or encouraged to be a part of a whole lot of programs. As sheep, okay, we need a steady diet of God's Word. Jesus preached the Word. He taught the Word. When the masses were more than likely looking for self-help, they were looking for miracles to be entertained by, He focused His efforts on teaching and preaching the Word. And by God's grace, that's what we're going to continue to do here, following in the example that's left to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
know, I've had people come to me through the years and they say, hey, you know, service is kind of long and, you know, maybe we can shorten the teaching a little bit, you know. We used to do like 20 minutes and that's, you know, all, you know, you could take. Most people aren't going to be able to remember everything you say anyways. I'm like, I don't care. Okay? <laughs> we're not going to lower the standard. We're going to raise the bar. Okay? And we're going to teach the word of God unashamedly. Okay? And that's going to be the emphasis because that is what Jesus Christ emphasized uh, and demonstrated for us. Now, we also read at the end of verse 17 that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, your text may read a little bit different, and that's because of different source texts that are used within different translations. Some of your Bibles may read something like, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. The basic idea is the same. Okay? God was wanting to do something amazing at this time and in this moment to not only teach the people, but to bring healing upon the people as well. And I still believe that God acts the same today. There are times and moments in life where God shows up and he just wants to do something amazing, something powerful, something glorious. And perhaps today will be that kind of day for some of you. Well, let's continue on in our text. Verse 18 and 19 says, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. We'll stop there. We read here in verses 18 and 19 about a group of men that came towards the house bringing a bed with a man upon it that was paralyzed in hopes of being able to lay him before Jesus that he may be healed. Now Luke doesn't tell us how many men there were, but Mark's gospel tells us that there were actually four men bringing this man to Jesus. No doubt this paralyzed man was a friend to these four men, a loved one. Uh, We can surmise that the paralytic was someone these four men cared about deeply. Uh, What these men heard, excuse me, when these men heard that Jesus was in town once again, they weren't going to miss out on an opportunity for their friend to be healed by the Lord. You know, I wonder, we don't, have any indication in the scriptures to say otherwise or to say so, but I do wonder. I wonder if perhaps these four men and this paralytic weren't part of that group of people that were looking for Jesus that morning when Jesus was last in Capernaum. Again, that text doesn't say, but I find it interesting to consider. What if this man was around the last time Jesus was in the city, but for whatever reason, he wasn't able to come out that particular night, that Sabbath when he was healing everybody, where the whole city had come out to him and he laid his hands on each and every single one of them. And then the next day, we're told that the crowds came out again looking for him. More people were coming. Perhaps, again, we can't say with certainty, but perhaps this man was part of that group. What if he was there and he missed out on the opportunity last time and he here hears that Jesus is back. He, hear, he heard about all that Jesus had, was able to do, how he was able to heal everybody and, and cast out demons and heal the sick and the authority which Jesus had. And so he see here that he wasn't going to let this opportunity slip him. Perhaps this man was part of that crowd. Again, the Bible doesn't say that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. These four men, they could not even get near Jesus because of the great crowd that had gathered at the house but they were not detoured. Okay, we're told that they went up onto the housetop. 
and they uncovered a portion of the roof where Jesus was teaching down below. Now, houses during that time usually had outside stairways that would lead up to the rooftop, so it wouldn't be too difficult to get up onto the roof. But roofs were most, most often flat. They were made of thatch, dirt, or tile laid over beams. And here we read that this particular house had tiling. However, I do want to caution you, the Greek word that's translated as tiling, it can actually refer to any kind of hard, baked clay or ceramic. Okay, whether the roof had actual tiles or it was packed with a clay-like mud, we can't say with certainty. What we can say, though, is that this would not be some easy, you know, pulling back of some branches on the roof or simply the opening of a trap door on the roof. I read that in one of the commentaries. They said, oh, you know, houses had these like trap doors. You could just lift it up and drop it. No, that's not the case. Okay, and that's not what this, the scriptures tells us right here. Okay. These men would have had to work diligently to make a hole big enough for their friend on his bed to fit through. Again, Mark's gospel described the work of these friends as needing to break through, having broke through, it says. Okay, it gives us the idea that they had to dig out a hole in this roof. And as we look at the efforts that these men went to in order to bring their friend to Jesus, it is quite inspiring. These men would not give up. They would not quit. They were tenacious. They would not be denied. They were going to bring their friend to Jesus no matter what it took. And I see in them the type of attitude that we should have when it comes to bringing our loved ones to the Lord, our friends and our family to the Lord. We're not going to quit praying for them. We're not going to quit telling them about Jesus. We're not going to let anything keep us from bringing them to the Lord. You know, too often we give up on people thinking that, well, they're just too far gone or thinking that they'll never come to the Lord, thinking that they'll never respond to those invitations that we've given them over and over again. Listen, church, family, don't give up, okay? We need to be the type of friends that don't give up on our loved ones. Okay? who don't allow obstacles to keep us from bringing our loved ones to the Lord. Not only do we need to be friends like that, listen, we also need to be surrounded, uh, surrounding ourselves with friends like that, with people who are going to bring us to the Lord, people who aren't going to quit on us, people that can keep us accountable and call us out when we need it, people that love us enough to not let us wander far from the Lord. You see, I, I look at these men and I see an incredibly encouraging example for all of us. Now, once they broke through the roof, they let down their friend, and there he was in front of Jesus. Let's read verse 20 and see what happened next. It says, When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus is teaching, he's preaching the word, he's telling people the gospel, and all of a sudden, the roof starts caving in from above. Debris from the roof being broken up is falling all around him. And as he looks up, and he, he notices these four men, what does he see? He sees their faith. He sees through their actions, their faith. We, we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm once again reminded of what James has to say in his epistle. He wrote, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith 
by my works. You see, our faith, it should be evident. Our faith should be seen in our actions, in our works. Our faith, it needs to be tangible. If we simply say we have faith, but we don't have any works, any actions that correspond to that faith, James says that our faith is dead. Okay? It isn't going to do anything for us. Our faith, it must be put into action. Jesus actually saw the faith in these men based upon their determination to bring their friend before the Lord. Their actions were evidence of their faith in Christ to do the miraculous, to heal their friend. Jesus indeed was about to do the miraculous. He was going to heal their friend, but not in the manner in which they were probably expecting. Jesus looked to the paralytic and he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And I do wonder what the faces of the men up on the roof looked like after hearing Jesus say, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And in my mind, okay, maybe I am alone in this, but in my mind, I imagine that perhaps they were a little bit confused. I would suggest that perhaps even disappointed. They had carried this man out to Peter's house. They went up on a roof. They broke through that roof, that tiling, and they lowered their paralytic friend before Jesus, and he responded by forgiving the paralytic of his sins. I imagine that they may have been thinking something like, that's great, Jesus, thanks for forgiving our friend, but but how about doing something about his paralysis? You know, that, that's why we brought him here. You know, perhaps they even thought that physical healing was this man's greatest need. Perhaps in their minds they thought he needed to be healed, Jesus. He, he can't walk. He's paralyzed. That's why we brought him to you. That's why we went through all this work, all this effort, is for you to heal him. We're not really concerned about his sins. But Jesus, being the great physician that he is, He immediately performed spiritual triage on his patient and he knew what this man's greatest need was. He knew that more than physical healing, this man needed spiritual healing. Jesus was looking to the eternal, not the temporal. This man needed his sins to be dealt with. You see, what good would it be for Jesus to heal this man, needed heal this man and make him whole, but not deal with his sins? and then have him walk straight into hell. Later, Jesus would attest, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. He also stated, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Jesus could have healed this man. But if he didn't deal with this man's greatest need, he'd still be headed straight to hell. This man's greatest need was to have his sins forgiven him. And this man's need is the greatest need of every human being alive today. Man's greatest need is to have his sins forgiven him. Without the forgiveness of sins, man is hopelessly lost and is destined to spend eternity separated from God's holy presence in a place that was created for the devil and his fallen angels, a very real place called hell. 
We all need to have our sins dealt with. And there is only one person that is able to solve our sin problem. Only one person that can forgive us our sins and take away the penalty of our sin. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross for us. He took our sins upon his shoulders. He laid down his life, paying the penalty for our sin, dying on the cross for us. And he rose from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death. And he offers to us, by grace, through faith, the forgiveness of sins. He offers to us a righteous standing before the Lord. He offers to us His very own righteousness. And all we must do to receive is to repent and place our faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 1, 9 states, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning and you have yet to respond to the free gift of salvation that God offers to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, I would simply ask you, why? Why have you not responded to your greatest need? You need forgiveness. And God offers it to you freely if you will come to Him. So don't delay any longer. Make sure that before you leave this building, you've allowed the Lord to take care of your greatest need. Jesus addressed this man's greatest need and he forgave him of his sins. Though his friends may not have realized it, Jesus did for the man the very best thing that he could have done for him. But there were some people there that were not too happy with what Jesus was saying and implying by his words. Let's take a look at verse 21. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes and the Pharisees, they heard Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness of sins upon this paralytic, and it was an affront to them. These men began to reason amongst themselves. They came to the conclusion that Jesus was speaking blasphemy, that he was breaking the law of God. Blasphemy, it involved speaking evil of or showing contempt towards or even a lack of reverence towards God. Included within the idea of blasphemy is claiming the attributes of God. When Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you, the scribes and the Pharisees, they equated that with blasphemy because they believed that God alone had the power to forgive sins. These religious leaders, they were wrong about their first conclusion, but they were correct regarding their second statement. They were correct in their assertion that God alone can forgive sins. God is the only one that can forgive us of our sins because all sin is against God. You see, when we sin, we sin against God. We sin against His law. We break God's law. We sin against Him. David knew and understood this to be true. It's evident in the Psalms that he wrote. When he wrote about his sin with Bathsheba, he wrote against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Joseph knew this truth as well. 
When Potiphar's wife continually pursued Joseph, trying to get him to lie with her, he denied her, stating, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, don't get me wrong. Our sin greatly impacts the people around us, especially those who feel the brunt of our sin. But understand that when we sin, we sin against a holy God. And that is why He alone is able to forgive us our sins. We can and we should forgive one another our trespasses, but ultimately our sins can only be forgiven by the Lord. The religious leaders, they were right in this regard, but they were wrong about their first conclusion. They concluded that Jesus was speaking blasphemy because he took upon himself the attributes of God. What they failed to realize is that Jesus is God, and therefore he had every right to forgive this paralytic of his sins. And Jesus does something next to verify his deity to the religious leaders. Let's take a look at what happens in verses 22 and 23. It says, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk. We'll pause right there. Jesus, he perceived the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees as they reasoned amongst themselves within their own hearts. Matthew's gospel describes how Jesus He knew their thoughts. Solomon, in his prayer of dedication in the Old Testament that he lifted up to the Lord, he asked God to hear in heaven. And he asked him to forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. And he says, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God alone knows the hearts of all the sons of men. This is something that Solomon knew. It was something that his father David had instructed him about. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, David exhorts his son Solomon. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and he understands all the intent of the thoughts. David He passed this along to Solomon, but David no doubt learned this lesson when Samuel told him about the way in which he was chosen to be the next king of Israel. You see, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God alone knows the true thoughts and intents of the heart. And this is something worth noting. This is very important, you guys. God knows what's happening in the inside of our hearts. He knows all. And there is nothing in your heart that God doesn't know about. Now, that can be a bit frightening to consider. (laughs) Because I know how wicked my heart can be. And I know how wicked your heart can be as well. God sees it all. There is nothing that you can hide from Him. You know, people are good at putting on a facade. They're good at putting on a show and they may be able to fool a lot of people. But God sees through all of that. God knows what's going on in the deepest recesses of your heart. And the amazing thing is, listen, church family, the amazing thing is, He still loves you. God loves us, knowing 
full well about all that dwells in the deepest crevices of our hearts. Why would we not confess to Him our sins? Why would we not come to Him and place our faith in Him? There is nothing that He doesn't already see, nothing that He doesn't already know. There's nothing that gets by Him. Okay? He knows it all. And yet He still loves you. And He desires to have an intimate relationship with you. Church family, that is amazing. Well, the very fact that Jesus was able to tell these religious leaders the thoughts their own thoughts and, and their own reasoning uh, that was going on in their hearts ought to have clued them into Jesus' divine nature, but they were blinded to the truth. Jesus asked them whether it was easier for him to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. And the obvious answer is that it was much easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, because there's no immediate way to verify whether or not someone's sins were forgiven. If Jesus said, rise up and walk, and the man still laid there paralyzed, and there would be an immediate proof that Jesus was nothing more than a charlatan, that he was a fraud, that he had no power. It was much easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven you. But in order to prove that Jesus had the power to say such a thing and to do such a thing, he then did something amazing, saying and doing that which the people thought was more difficult. Look at the next two verses with me, verses 24 and 25. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. Jesus proved that he had the power to forgive sins by healing this man of his paralysis. But in addition to that, and just as important, he proved his divine nature. The Jews believed that only God could forgive sins, and Jesus demonstrated right before them his power to forgive sins. But not only that, he prayed. He proved he was God by being able to read their thoughts, their hearts, know what they were thinking. Jesus even referred to himself as the Son of Man. Okay? And this is not just some humble title that Jesus came up with for himself. This was a messianic title. This was a title that was used by the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and their prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. Jesus very boldly claimed that he had the power to forgive sins, that he was the Messiah that they had been waiting for, and that he was God in the flesh. And yet, even with all this evidence before them, the scribes and Pharisees would choose not to to believe. Instead, hardening their hearts toward Jesus and ultimately fighting against the Lord, as we'll see, plotting to kill him rather than submit to him. As I look at this, I think to myself, how much evidence do you need? How much evidence do you need to come to the place where you are ready to make a decision for Christ? Because eternity hangs in the balance. Don't put off the decision to surrender your life to Christ. Take a step of faith and yield your life to Him because let me tell you something, church family, it really isn't evidence that you lack. It is faith. Faith is what is needed. And God has given to each of us a measure of faith that is more than sufficient to come to Him. Stop with the excuses. Give your life to the Lord. This paralytic, he responded to Jesus' invitation and he immediately did what Jesus called him to do. 
He rose up before them. He took up what he had been lying on and he departed to his own house glorifying God. I think it's so awesome to see and note here that Jesus gave this man the power to do that which he called him to do. Jesus actually called this man to do something that was physically impossible for him to do. He could not arise and take up his bed and go to his house. He was paralyzed. Yet as we see here, Jesus empowered this paralytic to accomplish that which he called him to do. And I believe Jesus does the same in our lives as well. Jesus will never call us to do something that he won't first empower us with the ability to do. Whatever God calls you to, he will empower you to fulfill that calling. Don't let fear of something you think impossible keep you from stepping out in faith and trusting God for the strength to accomplish all that he's called you to. Well, real quick, let's look at our final verse. We'll wrap this up. Verse 26. It says, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Three things we see that came about amongst the masses that witnessed this incredible miracle of Jesus forgiving and healing this paralytic man. Okay, First, we see that all were amazed. The crowd had seen Jesus perform miraculous healings before, and yet they said, we've seen strange things today. In Mark's gospel, it says, we never saw anything like this. What was different about this healing? Well, Jesus healed not only this man physically, but also spiritually, dealing with and supplying this man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus pronounced the forgiveness of this man's sins, and he then proved that he had the power and authority to do so, the people were struck once again with amazement. And you know, I think this ought to be the response of each and every sinner when they realize the fact that Jesus Christ has the power and the authority to forgive us of our sins. When we realize that our sins have been forgiven, that they have been washed away, when we come to the understanding that Jesus Christ supplied our greatest need ever, we ought to respond with amazement. Hey, we ought to be blown away by that. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We will stand before the Lord and be seen in His righteousness, in His holiness, okay? We will be seen as spotless before the Lord. We will be welcomed into God's presence because Jesus Christ took care of our sins. If that isn't amazing, I don't know what is. But second, we see that the people glorified God. The word glorified, it means to ascribe glory to or honor to anyone, to praise or to celebrate. To glorify God means to honor Him, to praise Him, to celebrate Him. It means to render glory to Him, recognizing Him for who He is and what He's done for us. It means to celebrate with praises and worship and adoration. Again, this is something that should be seen in every single believer. When we realize the fact that God has forgiven us our sins and provided our greatest need, our response ought to be to praise. It ought to be to worship. It ought to be us rendering to God all that is due Him for who He is and all that He's done for us. And thirdly, I see, we see that the people were filled with great fear. Now the word fear, it carries with it the idea of reverence, of respect and honor. To fear God is to respect and honor God. The way that we do that is to give to God the respect, the reverence, the admiration, the adoration, the awe, the praise, the submission and obedience that are due to him. It means to worship him in all of our attitudes, affections, and actions. I think Jesus summed it up best when he calls us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. 
fearing God and honoring him cannot be limited to simply external acts alone. Jesus commands us to honor God not only in our deeds, but also in our words and in our hearts. And again, I do believe that this ought to be the life and attitude of every single believer in the Lord, that we would fear the Lord with a holy reverence, that we would respect and honor God by loving him with everything we have. And so we see the threefold application here, the threefold response of amazement, of praise, and of honor. I hope and pray that that would be our response. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to have our sins forgiven. How amazing that is, God, that we will stand before you one day holy and righteous, not because of us, that's for sure, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that for the gift of salvation that you offer to us by grace through faith. Lord, my prayer, my hope is that every single person in this building right now, Lord, that they all would have responded to your gospel message and that there are none here, Lord, who are still in need of having their greatest need taken care of by you. Lord, I pray that you've healed us all of that disease of sin. Lord, I do pray that if there's anybody here that is yet to respond, Lord, I believe that just as you wrote in our portion today that the power to heal was was there at that time, Lord, that power still remains. Maybe today would be the day of salvation for some. We pray it so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.